Yes, my wife did tell me that, that it probably would have been a good idea if I would have said that I was going to take two Sundays so that when I got to the third of eight Beatitudes and it was 11.35, that people wouldn't panic. So, so yes, this is the second and final um, message on the Beatitudes. Um, yes, so, so before, before I came to church this morning, I, I happened to... Uh, whatever I was listening to, is played the song, you know, Give Me Jesus, which is one of my favorite worship songs of all time. And, uh, um, and I was just thinking that, that the, the Beatitudes is really Jesus telling us how we are to, how, how we are to, how we are to know him, how, to, how we are to become like him, how, what he wants us to be like, how we are to interact with people in the world, interact with God. So I think this is a, you know, this, this passage in the Bible is, all about us getting Jesus, and that's our desire. So let me just pray. So, Father, I just uh, um, come before you, Lord God. I ask that your spirit would just guide me in my words, Lord God, as I uh, try to um, speak about your word, about what your son Jesus has said to us. Um, may you give me your truth and not my own words, Lord God. So I pray you just be with us. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I read this passage, I just want just one reminder is that, that another word for blessed um, is happy or blissful. You know, the, the, the happiness and, bliss, and blissfulnesses of, of spiritual well-being, prosperity, deep joy of the soul, uh, and that has nothing to do with one's circumstances. So, so you, could, you could say where it says blessed is the one, you could be happy is the one. Um, so let me just read Matthew 5, 1 through 12, which is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So just kind of a quick review of what we talked about last week. Um, you know, this is, this is Jesus' first significant teaching. It is, it is a part of his uh, intensive training of his disciples, you know, his boot camp, you want to call that. Um, but also you need to remember that everybody, everybody was listening was not one of his disciples. There were many there that were just there because they wanted to see what was going on. There were Pharisees who were checking him out. Um, but, you know, even he says here that he went there um, and he taught his disciples. Um, so it, and also it describes, it's, so these passages describe the inner, the inner character of a disciple, you know, how they should relate to God and others. Um, also, the Beatitudes are, are intentionally placed in the order that they are listed. You know, there's, a, there's a reason for their, their order. That's something I never understood until I, until I kind of studied that. Um, so Jesus starts by addressing the heart attitudes of his followers, um, and then he goes on to explain how those, how those heart attitudes affect our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Um, also, you know, if you, you know, I 
If, if, you, if you read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in general, it can be a very intim- intimidating thing, meaning like, how in the world can I live this way? And, and uh, the fact is that none of us can live this way. You know, it's really a, an act of God's spirit working in our hearts and our surrender to God. Um, uh, we, need, we need God's grace and the Holy Spirit working in our lives to, to experience this change. So don't, don't allow yourself to feel overwhelmed, intimidated, and all that. So, so the first, the, the, I covered three Beatitudes last, last week, and I'll quickly be, review those. So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Th- this basically tells us that we need to understand that we are morally and spiritually bankrupt, that we have nothing to offer God on our own. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It's a, it's a, it's a confession that we as humans are sinful and rebellious, uh, utterly without moral virtue, uh, to commend ourselves to God. Um, and, and this is where, you know, it's, it's the first beatitude, because this is where we, we all have to start when we come to God. We have to acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt and that we need him. The second one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this is not about mourning over your circumstances or the circumstances of the people you know. This is the mourning that comes when a person realizes that they are, in fact, spiritually, morally bankrupt that they are destitute spiritually. Uh, this is the godly sorrow of 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. I'll read that. Um, this is Paul speaking. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So if we have a godly sorrow, a godly mourning, uh, this produces a repentant heart and leads to our salvation. This is the mourning that, that uh, the second Beatitude speaks to. Um, the third one we covered last week is, is blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. So when you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer God, and you are broken over your condition to the point that you mourn, uh, then you should realize that it leads to meekness, an attitude of meekness. You, know, you surrender yourself to God's will and put yourself uh, under submission to his will. Um, so meekness is, meekness is really strength under control. Uh, it's strength dedicated to serving God and others. It's not some wimpy, passive person that gets pushed around. You know, Jesus is the example of meekness. Um, so when you understand the depth of your spiritual bankruptcy, and you mourn over it, and you walk in meekness, this will lead you to the next step, which is... Which is um, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what is, it, what is the nature of this hunger and thirst? Okay, so this is, this is the deep hunger and, and thirst of people who lived in first century Palestine, you know, where they experienced frequent famine and drought. You, know, you had to go get your water at the well or whatever every day. Um, widespread poverty. Most people had to, to work every day in order to feed themselves um, it's not, the, it's not the hunger and thirst of, you know, 21st century America where you miss lunch or something like that. Um, it's a deep desire to change your heart um, from the one who loves sin to one who loves righteousness. An intense passion for righteousness in your own life and in the world around us. So it's not just a personal thing. It's also a desire to look in the world around us and, and want it also to walk in righteousness. Um, so what is righteousness? You know, the simplest description that I've, that I've read is it's, our, it's, it's that our relationship with God and people 
will be just like those of Jesus. You know, so it deals, it deals with our relationships with God and people. And, and, and the, the Bible center of, of righteousness is, is God's own perfection. And it says you know, in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word, his, his standard is our standard. We, don't, we are not to compare ourselves with other people and look around the church and say, hey, I like that person. I wish I could be like him. That's not, not what you we were called to do. We're called uh, to become more and more like Jesus, um, more and more righteous. Um, so, so, so I was reading this uh, part from John Stott, um, famous English pastor. I believe he's a pastor. Anyway, a theologian. Um, and he says, righteousness in the Bible has at least three aspects, legal, moral, and social. Legal righteousness is justification, a right relationship with God. So, so justification is, that, is, is God's declaring that those of us who receive uh, Jesus as our Savior, uh, we become righteous in God's eyes through, through our faith in Jesus. Uh, you are justified. You are declared innocent in a court of law. Um, now he says that this cannot be what Jesus means here because, because he's speaking to his disciples. Um, that he's addressing people who had already been made righteous in the legal sense by belonging to him. Um, the second one is, is more, more righteous. More righteousness is, is an inner righteousness of heart, mind, and motive. Um, but biblical righteousness is more than a private affair. And it, it includes social righteousness as well. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community um, as something pleasing to God. So this hunger for righteousness, again, is not something that is just solely meant that you, you look at yourself and you figure out what you need to do to make yourself... Um, more righteous. You are, you are to look at the world around us and see the, you know, the oppression, the poverty, the whatever, the, all the things that are going on in the world that you know are not of Jesus and to, and to be willing to be involved in that and in, in, in speaking to those in those situations. So how are we to be satisfied? If, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus promises to give us the spiritual Food and drink that we that we need to fill us. So in John John six thirty two through thirty five, which I'll read, Jesus says, um, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world." They said to him, "Sir, give us the this bread always." And Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life." Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So if we allow ourselves um, to recognize our, our, our spiritual bankruptcy, to mourn over it, we will, it will lead us to hunger and thirst for, for Jesus' righteousness in our own life and in the world around us. The next uh, beatitude says, is, is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So actually, there are, there are two aspects of mercy, and I never really thought of the second one as being mercy, but it's quite clear in the Bible. Um, the, the one that we think about is, you know, you always taught that, that uh, um, you know, grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get something that you do deserve. So mercy is, is the withholding of punishment or, or being forgiven for doing something wrong. That's, that's the typical thing that we think of, of a mercy. But mercy in the Bible also refers to um, compassionate treatment to those in distress, those with a need. And it doesn't matter if that distress is caused by the sins of the distressed person or, or something outside their control. So some examples of this is, 
All right, is Matthew 15, 22. So it says, A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely distressed by a demon. Or Matthew 17, 15. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So these are people that, that did not commit some sin that required God to forgive them. These are people that had a need that they could not meet, and they cried out to God and for his mercy, uh, for help in meeting their needs. Um, so how do we demonstrate mercy? So the merciful person will, you know, will first off show to those who are weaker or poorer. We'll always look for those who, who mourn and weep, those who are hurting, you know, that we are to look uh, to help those who are hurting. We are to be forgiving uh, to others and look to restore broken relationships. Uh, we are always to choose to think the best of others. It's easy to, you know, think the worst of other people. Um, we're not to expect too much of others. <laughs> Realize that, we, that you're a sinner, the people around you are sinners, we all need to be treated with mercy and compassion. Um, we, are to be, we are to be compassionate to those who are outwardly sinful. So obviously we live in a world where many of our neighbors do not believe what we believe, you know, walk in what we consider to be sin, and it's easy to, to not be compassionate, be, to be condemning, judgmental. That's not what God, call, God calls us to be merciful and compassionate to those who are outwardly sinful. And that we are to be concerned with the souls of others. Those are all aspects of being merciful. Um, and it says that, yet we know, so, so we should give mercy because we have already received it, and we want to continue it. That's what it, it says. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, so this is really best demonstrated, you know, I think, in the, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is Matthew 18, 21 for 35. Um, so there, Peter, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he goes on to tell this parable. You know, the parable is about you know, the king um, who decides he's going to go collect all the debts that his servants owe him. He goes to the servant who owes him 10,000 talents. And, and a talent in that point in time would be, would be how much you would get a, a, an ordinary worker would make over 20 years of wages. So, so 10,000 talents is just not something that's nobody, you know, whatever, that's what Jeff Bezos has in his bank account, kind of thing. Um, so it's, not, it's just meant to be, you know, that, you're, that you owe, you know, so much to the, to the king. Um, so the servant can't pay this debt, and the king is going to sell him, his wife, and his children, you know, and, and, and uh, get what he can from that. Uh, and, but the, the servant begs for patience, um, and the king forgives his debt. So then, as so you remember, that the forgiven servant um, then goes to one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. You know, and a denarii is one day's wage. So huge debt to the king, little debt from his fellow servant. Um, and he demands, you know, the forgiven servant demands that, the, that, that, that his fellow servant pay him back now and then has him thrown in jail when he can't pay. And when the king hears of this, um, he has the forgiven servant thrown into jail. And he, and he concludes this, he, Jesus, concludes this parable by saying, so also my father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this, this parable, again, is obviously saying if, if you give mercy, then God will in turn give mercy to you.
So the, ne the next para, para, um, beatitude is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So I'm going to start kind of at the end, before we go back to the beginning of this. So, so seeing, as it says here, for they shall see God. The pure in heart shall see God. So, so what does that seeing God mean? Um, I mean, it means, you know, the restoration of our intimate relationship with God. It means that we, are, we, have, re -entered, we have entered into his kingdom as that relationship is restored, that, that we are saved. Um, at this time, the, the Jews were very concerned with, you know, how, what do they need to do to make it into the kingdom of God? What kind of righteousness must they have? What does God require of them, of us? And the Pharisees stressed the necessity of following all these external rules that put a very heavy burden on the people that they could not follow. So Jesus here is, is lifting these external burdens, these rules, these laws that the Pharisees have put on uh, their fellow Jews and focuses on the conditions of people's hearts. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? So, so the word for pure means clean, blameless, unstained from guilt. Uh, it also can refer to something that is purified by fire or pruning. And uh, obviously that the Bible speaks to those. And, and if you live long enough, which is not very long, you understand that you learn far more from going through hard times than you learn through going through easy times. So you learn, right. you, you are pruned, you become more pure in heart as you walk through trials, understand your own personal limitations to deal with them, surrender to God and ask for his help to get you through those things. Um, so, so the heart is the spiritual center of our life. You know, it's where all your thoughts, your desires, your emotions, your wills, your character re reside. So a pure heart is a single, excuse me, a single undivided heart focused on God. It is, it is being uh, utterly sincere in our devotion and commitment to following God. That there, there's no hypocrisy. You're not, you're not doing it to look good uh, in front of other people, you know, in, in, you know, whatever like the Pharisees did. Um, there's no hypocrisy, no hidden motives. Your, your goal is that, that uh, you know and follow and, and Jesus in all aspects of your life. So how, how do we become pure in heart? The, uh, the only way, you know, we, we can't do it on our own. There's no way you can say, I'm going to become pure in heart. Um, it makes me think, man, when I, when I, when I, became, I, was, I was in my 30s when I became a believer, and, and since I was a nuclear submarine officer who gets learned how to, you know, be learned with my books, how to learn, my first thought was, I'm going to go through the Bible, I'm going to write down all of the things that Jesus and the, and the laws tell us to do, you know, so that I can, like, work on all these things, and... I gave up very quickly on that because uh, <laughs> it's really, really hard to do that, and it's really, really hard. I mean, it's hard to write them down, let alone follow them. Um, so, so, so the only way to become pure in heart, really, is to give our lives to Jesus. You know, give me Jesus, and 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 ask Him to cleanse our heart. Um, we'll never have a, we will never have a sin-free heart. But Jesus' death on the cross makes us pure in God's eyes. And then, and then um, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which will work, work in our lives through our trials and tribulations and our daily walk through life to purify us. You know? So God, God is the one who purifies our heart. You just need to 
to submit, surrender your heart to him and let him uh, bit by bit purify you. Um, so Psalm 51.10 reflects this, the fact that God is the one who purifies our heart. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I also want to read 1 John 3, uh, 1 through 3. Where John says, Apostle John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, shall, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he Jesus is pure. So our purity comes through, through really our surrender to Jesus and the Holy Spirit and letting him work it through us. So the next beatitude is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. I've heard it say that, you know, that this is the culmination of the beatitudes. That, that, uh, and they say that because, you know, that this is, that this, this reflects God's main purpose for his people, that, that we are peacemakers or, or reconcilers is the way you can think about that. Um, you know, so the Bible begins with peace on earth. You know, we're in the Garden of Eden, everything's great. Uh, Adam and Eve are wa- walking in relationship with their father. Um, peace reigns. And, and, and also the Bible ends uh, uh, with peace and revelations, the, the, the new heaven and earth of Revelation 21. But in between, which is where we all live, you know, there is constant conflict, you know, throughout your own personal lives, our country, the world. Um, so obviously, if being a peacemaker is important, it means that conflict <laughs> surrounds us. So, so we live in a world of conflict. Um, so according to the Bible, this, this perpetual conflict exists because people, people are sinners whose relationship with God and others are broken. So the only way to, to reduce this conflict or limit this conflict um, is to help people reconcile with God and then reconcile with other people. Um, this is what Christians are called to do. We are called to be peacemakers, first between man and, man and God uh, and also between people. Um, so by sharing the gospel, we are involved evolving ourselves in the process of making peace between God and man. So, so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, us meaning us, the, his believers, his, his people, the church. So he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So the reality is there's never, there will never be peace on earth until everybody makes peace with God, which comes when Jesus returns. Um, so what, what is peace? Um, I think Brett said that. You know, it's, it's, it's more, far, far more than just the lack of conflict. It, it is, it is a complete, I think he said it's completeness. Sort of thing. Um, it's a presence of all that is good, completeness, soundness, welfare, harmony, 
kind of the shalom of, of the, the Hebrew shalom, the restoration uh, of relationships between you know, God and man and man and man. Um, conflict avoidance is not, is not the same as peace. As a, as a serial conflict avoider, um, <laughs> we all think that. We think that you know, if we avoid conflict, if we whatever, don't deal with conflict in North Carolina. Usually, I mean, actually what I've learned is if you don't deal with conflict, it just gets bigger. It makes the resolution even more painful than it would be if you just resolved it. So, so, so avoiding conflict is not the same as, as peace. Um, biblical peace occurs uh, when conflict is re resolved, biblically, I guess. So, so what are the attributes of a, of a peacemaker? Um, a biblical peacemaker is somebody who first has come to peace with God. So that the church, you know, we, we, the people of the church, the church, um, we, are, we are peacemakers. God is, God is asking us to be in his world as peacemakers. Um, so if you're going to become a peacemaker, you have to be a person who, first of all, does not solely seek his own personal peace. Because, because if you're going to be a peacemaker... That means you have to be involved in conflict, meaning you have to give up some of your own personal peace because who likes being involved in conflict? Um, if, you're, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you need to be willing to speak the truth in love and engage in conflict with those who disagree with you. Um, I think, think of, of, you know, Jesus is the ultimate example of a godly peacemaker. I mean, he's, he's our example in that. So, so, obviously, Jesus' Jesus's presence and speaking the truth and love created conflict. So, so, the reality of it is, is that, is that in order for there to be the peace of God in the, in the world, and for us to be peacemakers, we are actually going to create some conflict among some people. Um, so, Jesus' mission was to, to, was to reconcile all people Meaning all people, meaning Jews and Gentiles, to God, and there, but thereby creating one human family. You know, so he was trying to bring these two warring parties, the Jews and then the rest of the world, uh, together. He's reconciling. He's he's bringing uh, peace between all mankind, um, and he did this by speaking the truth in love, even though it upset a lot of people. Um, and brought him into conflict with the religious leaders of the time. And Jesus even said in Matthew 10, 34, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Um, and Jesus meant that conflict would be the inevitable result of his coming, even in one's own family. And that if we are worthy of him, we must love him best and put him first, even if it does create conflict. Um, however, a, a peacemaker does not needlessly promote conflict, you know, but pursues, I think some of us, you know, sometimes I think that, well, that happens. Um, you, don't, you don't go out and seek to, to create conflict, um, but we have to pursue truth or righteousness. Um, Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, this is the key, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with one another. Um, so you, I mean, obviously there's two sides of a conflict. You are, God calls us 
as far as much as as far as we can to live in peace, but sometimes um, it's not possible. Um, I mean, the reality is, 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 is that, that we are going to have, you know, we are going to have irreconcilable differences in our values and beliefs with those who are not of, who are not Jesus followers. Um, so, how do we make peace? How do we resolve conflict? Um, we need to confront sin and promote truth. Um, this must come out of a pure heart, focused on, on accomplishing God's will in the situation. It can, it can never be a compact. Uh, uh, with sin uh, or an alliance with evil. So you don't just compromise what is right to go along and keep the peace. That's what it's always saying. And, um, and we must set ourselves against everything which is contrary to God and his holiness. And I really think of, I think of, of Anna, 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 who I know has been, as a lawyer, has worked in government and, and who has, has fought for the rights of the unborn and has, has uh, you know, She's trying to make peace, especially for those, those babies, but creates, finds herself in, in great conflict. Um, so the, the, the reward of peacemakers is that they are recognized as true children of God, that they share his passion for peace and reconciliation, the breaking down of walls between people um, and God and, 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 you know, and people are people. So it's a, it's a, but the reality of it is a biblical peacemaker who speaks, God, speaks God's truth and love to others and to the general society and that confronts sin will often be persecuted. You know, obviously Jesus being crucified on the cross is an example of a peacemaker who came to reconcile us with, us with God and, and who was crucified, which leads us into the final beatitude. Kind of, it's almost two in one, really. Um, but verses 10 11, so blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So persecuted is actually mentioned in two, these are almost like two beatitudes, two blessings are. Um, so I think Jesus is trying to make a strong point. Um, so, so, the, so the reality, our, our reality is, if you follow Jesus and stand for the truth of Scripture, that you will run afoul of cultural norms, and, and uh, especially as our culture moves further and further away from any kind of biblical norms. And you will experience some kind of negative consequences. And, and talking to Anna, I know she's experienced lots of negative consequences as she has, she has dealt in the area of abortion. Um, so, so, so followers of Jesus are persecuted um, because, number one, in, for that verse 10 says that we stand for biblical righteousness and against sin. Um, and also because we're followers of Jesus. Verse 11 says um, that, we, that we will, we will um, others will revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against you because falsely on my account, on Jesus' account. So the fact that you are Jesus' followers trying to live is his way, you will experience some kind of persecution. Um, so persecution is simply the, the, the result of the clash, again, I said this, between two irreconcilable value systems. So how are we to react to persecution? First off, it shouldn't surprise us. It, it is, I mean, it surprises us because we live in the United States, which uh, you know, had a biblical, strong biblical ethic for, ethic for many years, but that's not the norm. 
Um, it is a normal mark of a Jesus follower. Um, we are not to retaliate uh, when we are persecuted like an unbeliever. Uh, we're not to sulk like a child because somebody's picking on you unfairly. Uh, we're not to feel sorry for ourselves. We're not to just grin and bear it like a stoic um, or pretend to enjoy it, you know, like I'm some tough guy. We, we are, as it, as it says, we are to, to rejoice and be glad. And we can think of all those James 1 things, you know, be rejoicing and glad for your, the trials. Um, so so why, why? Why do we rejoice and be glad? Because it says, you know, our reward is great in heaven. Um, and also, it, it, is, it is a mark of genuine faith uh, and walk with the Lord, just like the prophets of the Old Testament. They spoke the truth of, of God to an unbelieving uh, population and, and um, were, were persecuted. And also, you know, also, we do it because we are out of our loyalty to Jesus, uh, to honor him who was willing to be, to be persecuted himself and to suffer for us. So let me just kind of wrap this up, conclude this. Um, Again, I'm going to read a quote from John Stott. He says, that, he says, The work of the kingdom is summed up well in the Beatitudes. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks or the navy. Uh, he sends in the meek. <laughs> sends in the meek, the mourner. The, so, so if he wants the kingdom, to be, to be, the kingdom work to be, to be advanced, he sends in the meek, the, the, the mourners, uh, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemaker, and so on, and not the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are, are um, God's agenda for kingdom people. Uh, Jesus wants, wants us to impact the world around us um, by being people like this, uh, people like him. So the best thing we can do for, for the broken, hurting world we live in is to become like Jesus, and the Beatitudes are a great place to begin. We, we, we need to help others to become more like Jesus, you know, through evangelism and discipleship. And we, and we are to engage the world. And we are not to withdraw from the world's problems and just pursue, pursue our own personal peace and comfort. Um, this is what God has called us to do, to be kingdom builders alongside him. So let me pray. Father, I thank, we thank you, Lord God, for your word and for your Holy Spirit, Lord God. And I pray that... that um, we would be students of your word, Lord God, that we would meditate on it, we would chew on it, we would embrace it, we would let it change our lives through the working of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. And I pray that, that uh, um, especially that as we ponder on uh, the Beatitudes, Lord Jesus, that we would let those sink deeply into our hearts and mind and impact our lives from, as we walk out of here, Lord God. And we just love you, and we just um, are grateful that you... Uh, want to be part of our lives, Lord God, that you have saved us, um, and you, you are working through your people to, to make this world a better place, Father. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.